Well, good evening and welcome to the latest lecture in our new Sheikh Zayed Theatre. And this evening, um, there are two things we are uh, celebrating. Uh, one, Ed Glazer's presence over here, but um, before I introduce him, we are launching here the Spatial Economics Research Centre, which is the second big new research centre we're launching this year in the school, the first being the Grantham Institute on Climate Change, which we launched here about uh, six weeks ago. But we were very pleased when we won a bid uh, to the Economic and Social Research Council, but also to the Department for Business Enterprise and Regulatory Reform, and also Department of Communities and Local Government and the Welsh Assembly, who together have funded this new centre, um, which will be directed by Henry Overman, who will, uh, to celebrate this, pour you all a drink afterwards, by the way, you're all, uh, he will personally do that. Um, you're all invited, by the way, to stay for a glass of wine at the end. Um, uh, and also, uh, the research director will be Steve Gibbons. We'll be working with some other universities around the country, but the essential agenda is to try to understand the dynamics of differential regional growth rates and differential regional prosperity. As you will know, the differences between southeast of England and some less favoured regions of the UK in terms of GDP per head and gross value added per head is very large. Uh, now, I think that um, uh, Henry's objective was to try to find ways of reducing this differential by increasing the gross value added in the other regions. But actually, we uh, have just discovered, perhaps by accident, a new policy, which is we can reduce those differentials by reducing the value added per head in London and the southeast um, by uh, engineering a massive financial crisis. So I think this centre is likely to be successful, um, but not necessarily uh, in the way the government intended. Anyway, we'll hear, you will hear a lot more about the centre in due course. But tonight, we're delighted to have help us launch it, uh, Ed Glazer from Harvard, uh, who is one of the most uh, distinguished urban economists uh, one could imagine. Um, he did his BA in economics from Princeton and his PhD from Chicago, but fetched up at Harvard uh, about 15 years ago, where he is currently the Fred and Eleanor Glimp Professor at the Department of Economics and Director of the Taubman Centre for State and Local Government and Director of the Rappaport Institute for... He pulls in several salaries from uh, Harvard, it would seem. Um, in addition to being editor of the Quarterly Journal of uh, Economics. Uh, he's been described by George Akerlof as a genius um, and by Gary Becker said that before Glazer, urban economics was dried up and no one had come up with new ways to look at cities. Well, we're hoping we're going to learn some new ways to look at cities this evening. Uh, he's going to talk to us about our urban future, the death of distance and the rise of cities. I'm not going to do what I always hate uh, people who introduce me speaking do, and that is to summarise what I'm going to say before I stand up. Um, so I won't do that, and just welcome Ed to the school. Thank you. Thank you, uh, thank you very much for that, that kind introduction, and, and thank you all very much for being here. I'm, I'm thrilled to have the opportunity to talk, 
talk to you, uh, in part because it's always a joy to be able to celebrate uh, cities and to celebrate the study of cities. Uh, I'm particularly pleased to be here on this auspicious occasion of the inauguration of this new center. And I, I am, LSC has always been an exciting place for urban and geographic research, and I, I think that that will only continue and be expanded with this, with this exciting new center that will, that will occur. So um, with that, I, I'm going to uh, move forward. Um, and I want to start with a central paradox, which is why is it that in an era in which transportation and communication costs have resulted in what's been called the death of distance, that have resulted in what's been called the flat world, why is it in this world in which we can effortlessly surf the net from almost every uh, forlorn spot throughout the globe where you know, we can communicate across continents easily, why is it that in this age, cities appear to be more vital, more important, more innovative, more exciting than ever. Why, isn't that, why is it not that, as we were told 20 years ago or 10 years ago or 100 years ago, that information technology would make the demand for proximity obsolete? That we would all you know, telecommute in from the wilds of Montana or uh, some other similarly uh, 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 far, off, far off place. Um, but instead of that, we've seen both in the developed world and the developing world uh, a remarkable urban resurgence uh, that's shown up in, in the, the developed world in places that really looked like they were, had a fairly grim future in the 1970s, be that, be that New York or Boston or Chicago or London. Uh, those, those places come roaring back over the past 30 years. And of course, in the developing world, the great cities of, of China and India are you know, thriving, and they are, they are the gateways uh, to economic growth, to connecting uh, the developed world and the developing, uh, the developing world. Um, urban resurgence is um, visible in lots of different ways. Uh, I'm going to show you a lot of these messy graphs. I'm enormously fond of them. It's not clear that anyone else is. Uh, but but uh, these are, uh, sometimes people like to look at where their favorite cities end up, and this one's particularly messy. This, this shows the relationship between per capita, uh, I'm sorry, median family income and density across American metropolitan areas. Um, as you can see, there, there is a, it's certainly not a perfect correlation, but it is certainly true that there is a strong positive correlation between income and density. That is also true, for example, if you looked at gross metropolitan product per capita, that dense places, big cities, are much uh, more productive than, low, than lower density areas. This is, of course, the essence of agglomeration economies, that the, 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 the tendency of human beings to become more productive when we're surrounded by people uh, around us. And, and these continuingly strong correlation is evidence that those agglomeration economies are, are far from dead. Of course, it's also true that across countries, urbanization, this is urbanization and GDP, urbanization and GDP are almost the same things, right? That, that there is an enormously tight connection between people living in cities. Uh, and the degree of wealth of the country. This is not to imply that people should be artificially forced to move in cities, but it certainly is a sign that the urbanization is part of the process of development and that actually living in large uh, urban areas is part of the transition uh, from poverty to wealth. The hypothesis that I'm going to put forward today to explain why it is uh, that the death of distance has not been accompanied by the death of cities is that one of the major effects of globalization has been to increase the returns to being smart. There's, of course, a long literature in economics on, on the rise in returns to skill that's been seen since the 1970s in, in almost every developed country. Pretty much everywhere you look, whether or not it's skilled industries or skilled people, the, the market has increasingly rewarded brains 
right, has increasingly rewarded years of schooling, has increasingly rewarded the people at the high end of the human capital market. This is, in some sense, a, a problem right, for people who worry about inequality, uh, which I do as well. The the you know, the rise in returns to scale has made uh, has made the, the world of individuals uh, more unequal. But that same rise in returns to skill is, at least uh, I'm, I'm going to claim tonight, is strongly linked to the rebirth of cities. Because, in fact, human beings are a remarkably social species. And, and a large amount of what we know, we have learned from the people around us. That is, of course, what universities do. That's, in fact, what we're trying to do here. I'm trying to learn from you, and, and hopefully you may learn something from connection, connection to me. It's what, but it's also what happens, of course, outside of universities in the workforce, where so much of the human capital that we accumulate in our lives comes from interacting with, with smart people. Now, that's fundamentally what cities are about today. They've always had this phenomenon to connect smart people and to spread knowledge, right? When, when Socrates interacted with Plato on an Athenian street corner, uh, knowledge was being transferred 2,500 years ago, uh, almost. That the chain, chains of ideas have always been sort of part of urban areas. That the you know ideas about linear perspective, which started off with Brunelleschi and then moved to uh, Donatello, who puts it into low relief sculpture, and then moves to Masaccio, who puts it into painting, and then moves to his student uh, Filippo Lippi. This sort of chain of ideas has has where one smart person learns from a physically proximate. Uh, friend or neighbor has always been part of cities, and it's why cities have generated such remarkable things in terms of, of humans' uh, innovation and humans' humans' ideas. But historically, they were a byproduct; they were an accidental thing. Florence was, of course, a, a wool town, a woolen banking town. It wasn't made in the 15th century because it happened to have great painting, right? In the 19th century, a similar chain of ideas started with William LeBaron Jenny uh, and moved to his uh, his assistants, his. Um, uh, Apprentices, Lewis, Lewis Sullivan, Daniel Burnham, the chain of ideas that gave us the modern skyscraper that sort of moved from, from person to person. There's often an attempt to sort of figure out who's the person who actually gave us, gave us the skyscraper, and this devolves into battles about how many load-bearing walls still existed in, in the home equitable building and things like this. But the point of the matter, of course, is like all urban innovations, there wasn't one person. It was a chain. It was smart people who were connected by density and learned from each other and did miraculous, did miraculous things. This is still going on, but whereas in 19th century Chicago, which was a city built on hogs and corn, right, this was an interesting byproduct, an important byproduct, albeit, but, but not the main event. Today, it is the main event. Today, the chain of ideas in, in, that spread from innovator to innovator and finance is the story of New York's uh, financial uh, rebirth, New York's economic the chain of ideas that goes on in London is, is, part, is the heart of this, this, uh, city's, um, this city's strength. Um, so because of this, because cities have this remarkable ability to, smart, to, to connect smart people, because the density that once served to get hogsheads onto clipper ships now serves primarily to connect smart people who learn from each other, this urban tendency to be forges of human capital or engines of innovation has only become more valuable with the death of distance. A hundred years ago when you were innovating, you were innovating for a local market. You were limited by the possibilities of the places that you could easily reach. Today the world is, is innovators in London and New York can, can reap returns on a global scale. And as a result, the returns to being smarter are higher than ever. And uh, in a sense, the same death of distance that, that did, so, did so much to harm the goods producing cities by facing them with competition from goods producers else in the world actually did great things for idea producing cities. And the rebirth of these urban areas is because they were able to move from being goods producing cities to being idea producing, to being idea -producing cities. Let me, um, 
I, I always make a pilgrimage to the National Gallery when I'm, I'm in London. And uh, this is, you know, National Gallery is one of my favorite places in London, and this painting is, of course, one of my favorite paintings in, in the National Gallery. But it's a good place to start when thinking about, thinking about cities. Um, this is, of course, the portrait of, of an Italian uh, done in his home in Bruges uh, by a, a member of another, paint, uh, another chain of painting genius, Jan, Jan van Eyck. Um, and what's so interesting about this painting from a modern perspective, and you particularly see it actually when you walk through the National Gallery, is that you go from this world of highly religious art that came out of 15th century, uh, 15th to 14th century Italy into this world, and suddenly you're looking at something that looks like, looks remarkably modern. Suddenly you're looking at a couple who maybe they wouldn't have exactly that fur capey thing. But you know, these people could be your neighbors. It's a, it's a merchant, it's a member of sort of a global, uh, a global world. They're showing off their wealth. They're sort of part of a modern, a modern commercial world. And they're they're in Bruges, okay, which is of course one of the great cities of the of the past millennium. That for centuries was one of the, the fonts of innovation in politics and religion and art and, of course, commerce. Um, it was these cities, these sort of nascent, uh, mostly wool towns of Europe, that sort of gave us much of the push towards modern civilization uh, and towards the, the sort of commercial world that we now, um, that we now live in. Um, these cities, of course, as, as I suggested earlier, didn't start about, didn't start with a concern for, for art, right? They start with the older cities, the older commercial cities are all fundamentally in, in the business of one of the two basic commodities that are mobile, right? They're either in the business of, of food or they're in the business of clothing, right? So Venice, food town, high-end food, spices, that kind of thing. Um, London, London's a clothing town. It's also a political center, maybe somewhat different. Rouge, clothing town. Right? All of these places were fundamentally built around relatively high-end clothing that came from wool originally grown in the in the uh, uh, wool originally raised raised in the in the lowlands near near Bruges, then imported from England. It, this this port was just the node of a network where English wool moved to um, Flemish uh, weavers, who then transformed it into this valuable product. The city at that point in time had its strength from the fact that people were able to learn from each other there too. Right? This was a skilled trade. This wasn't about universities. People were learning, uh, learning from one another. And of course, it was, it was part, of a, part of a large uh, uh, trade network. These cities then created gifts. Right? So uh, I already talked about the, uh, the, the Florentine, Florentine art that came out of the Florentine wool trade. Um, you know, th there are no end of sort of innovations that were related to these towns. Don't forget, St. Francis was in fact the son of a wool merchant. Right, these, these urban connections led towards the spread of ideas that created innovations in, in a, whole set of, a whole set of areas. Um, education and literacy. In the, in the center of Bruges, in the, in the town square, there's a, a statue of uh, Bridal and Deconic, a, a weaver and a butcher, perfectly symbolizing food and, food and clothing. These two people were responsible for one of the many urban uprisings against French overlordship in uh, Bruges. And in many senses, they are much more modern figures than their rough contemporary William Wallace of Scotland, who is more or less you know, someone who looks fairly like a, a common, you know, a brave, brave perhaps, but a, a, a common feudal warlord. Bridal and Deconic are urban craftsmen connected by density, working with the social networks that were made possible by the woolworking town of, of Bruges, who took, were part of a chain that actually brought, ultimately, Republican government to the Low Countries. 
Um, and you know, this, these sorts of things came out of cities, and they're in some sense forerunners of, say, Sam Adams, who in his urban partnership with John Hancock, John Hancock wanted English tariff policy change. Sam Adams had the connection with the, the Boston rowdies who could cause trouble uh, uh, for, for the British. And again, the sort of connection which uh, did so much to sort of move politics, uh, move politics along. These gifts have always been part of cities. Um, but they weren't, uh, they weren't, as I said, the main, the main event. Um, in the 19th century, uh, America's cities grew up as, as nodes on a, on a watery network, right? So every one of the 20 largest cities in America in 1900 was on a major waterway. This reflected the fact that it was so much easier to move goods by water than it was over land. In, in 1816, it cost more to move goods 32 miles over land than in the United States than it did to move them across the Atlantic. And moving them across the Atlantic wasn't free. Right? This, was a, this was still an expensive thing to do. And as a result, every one of the major cities were on a waterway from the oldest American cities, Boston and New York, to in, in uh, 1900, the youngest American city in Minneapolis, which was on uh, St. Anthony's Falls, which is the furthest navigable point uh, north on the Mississippi River, similar to London being on the furthest navigable point uh, west on, on the Thames. Um, these places were about the basic job of America, which was getting the wealth of the American hinterland moved out to the markets of the East Coast and, and to Europe. And Chicago's paradigmatic industry, the stockyards, was basically about getting corn calories uh, east. Right? So pigs are, are corn with feet. Right? And, they, and they're moved relatively cheaply. Uh, over space where they're slaughtered in Chicago and then, then moved, moved east. They're then innovations, as there always are in cities like refrigerated rail, yard, rail cars, uh, that then make it easier to, to move, beef, uh, move beef, beef as well. But all of these cities were formed around transportation networks that were only buttressed by rail, and of course buttressed by the, the core agglomeration economy, which was the reductions in the cost of moving goods. You moved your manufacturing factories around the rail yards and the ports because it just was much cheaper in terms of moving goods over space. You were saving those transportation costs. Um, so that was a great model in 1900. And these cities saved transportation costs when transportation costs were a big deal. The problem was the 20th century. So what you're watching here is over the course of the 20th century, the reduction in moving a ton mile by rail within the United States in real dollars. It's a 90% reduction. Whereas in 1900, it was incredibly costly to move goods over space. By 2000, it became incredibly cheap. All of these cities that were once built around transportation cost advantages had lost their very reason for being. And every one of the older, colder cities in the US was in trouble. And indeed, this phenomenon was also, you know, and it's still playing out in the UK as well. Think about Liverpool, which is in some sense the, you know, the mirror image of the American trading cities that existed across this great water-borne uh, transatlantic uh, network. Um, the decline in transportation costs meant that firms no longer needed to locate where they had a productive advantage in terms of moving goods over space, but instead moved to places where people want to live, people wanted to live. In the U.S., this has resulted in the fact that the single variable which best explains urban growth in the U.S. over the past hundred years is January temperature. And that's what you're looking at right now, is the relationship between population growth between 1982 and 2000 and the average January, the average January temperature. This is not particularly surprising. I mean, anyone who's actually spent a, a winter in Detroit compared to the winter in, in San Jose, California, th those, there are real differences between these places. And we're not surprised that once San Francisco didn't stop being basically as far away as Tasmania uh, to Americans, that once it actually became feasible to actually locate production there, that Americans actually, actually moved to that. Um, 
Those transportation cost uh, changes also were related to the interstate highway system, the rise in trucks that enabled the dispersion of manufacturing from urban centers. As late as 1950, seven out of the eight largest American cities were over-concentrated in manufacturing, meaning that they had more concentration than the U.S. economy did as a whole. By 1990, uh, six out of eight were under-concentrated in manufacturing. There was a great exodus of manufacturing from American cities. The result of this, of course, was the crisis of the 1970s, and it's a crisis that was also felt here in the UK as, as well, where these cities that had once been centers in light manufacturing, New York City, right? New York City's three great 19th century industries were uh, clothing, sugar refining, and printing and publishing. All three of them were intimately related to, to, to uh, transport across space. Sugar refining, of course, because New York was the port of entry for coarse, for, for coarse unrefined sugar coming into coming into the U.S., and you could reap scale economies by refining sugar in one, one place. Clothing, obviously, because New York was the center of the vast palm trade uh, that came to the U.S. And of course, printing and publishing New York was the best place to steal the latest British novels and publish them without paying copyright payments uh, to, their, uh, to, their British, uh, to their British authors. Uh, the, um, the alleged dominance of the Harper brothers over Carrie and Lean in Philadelphia came because they were able to uh, get Peveril of the Peak out uh, three days ahead of time uh, because they were able to get, get it by boat faster. Um, but the transportation costs disappeared. The transportation cost advantages disappeared, and all of these cities were in, were in trouble. But then there was a rebirth, and the rebirth has a feeling of a chain of ideas that looks remarkably similar to the chain of ideas that gave us perspective in painting the 15th century in Barnes. New York's reinvention is remarkably centered on finance. Forty percent of the total payroll of New York City is, is in finance and insurance, or was in 2006. It'll be at less today. Uh, but it, it was very much related to one industry. The rebirth of that industry is very much a chain of ideas. It starts, actually, oddly, in the University of Chicago with an increased ability to trade off risk and return. And these are ideas that Jimmy Savage and Milton Friedman are playing with 60 years ago. They then move to Sharp and Markowitz, who are young graduate students who are learning from close proximity uh, to, um, to, to Friedman and Savage. Sharp and Markowitz then transfer the ideas to people like Jack Trainer uh, and Fisher Black, and then uh, take, them, take them to Wall Street. Trainer moves to Merrill Lynch in 1966, and there's increasing sophistication about thinking about the trade-off between risk and return. The ability to think about the trade-off between risk and return then leads the young Michael Milken, then in New York, to managed to make the case that you can actually include high-yield debt in your portfolios without taking on un unnecessary risk. And he's able to sell vast amounts of uh, these commodities because he's able to sell them with the tools of, of risk-return analysis. The ability to sell riskier assets, the ability to, to finance things with high-yield debt, then enables people like Henry Kravis to uh, use that high-yield debt to restructure American companies to, and to earn vast fortunes uh, through leveraged buyouts and various other corporate takeovers. Um, the, the ability to, to understand risk also leads to the nationwide sharing of mortgage-backed securities, uh, which is associated with Lou Ranieri and Solomon Brothers in, in, the, uh, in the 80s. Um, as in pretty much all cases, guys do go too far. Uh, and and it, it's certainly true that like, uh, I think, every financial innovation since the, the dawn of recorded history, there's no question that, that this stuff was taken to, to an extreme. But it, it certainly, for many decades, fueled uh, the reinvention of New York. And it was all about smart people riffing off each other's ideas and coming up with the, with the new, new thing. You can obviously tell a similar story for the people from Fairchild Semiconductor in Silicon Valley who learned from each other and borrowed ideas and did, did new things in computers uh, as well. Actually, Michael Bloomberg is another, another part of this chain, right? His selling of data, that data was valuable because people understood how to use that data, 
right? So the, the stream of Bloomberg data, which is now the part of so many people in the financial services industry's desktops, wouldn't have been valuable without this, without this stuff. And, and Bloomberg, of course, comes out of the Solomon Brothers trading uh, room in the 1970s. These types of stories show up in city after city, that cities that were once about producing goods are now about producing ideas. The one-time role of New York is sort of a relatively cheap producer of clothing that took advantage of its, of its low costs of actually making goods imported with, with cotton uh, from elsewhere, um, you know, that's morphed into an idea-oriented design industry. Right? And that's, that's true for the many sectors of, of many places in Europe where there's a design center. Usually there's some previous, previous incarnation of the clothing industry that actually once came from transportation cost advantages that now exists at smart people producing ideas that are often you know, made, in, made somewhere else. In fact, the, the, the design, the fashion design element is one sort of classic case that can illustrate the role that globalization has played to increase the returns to ideas, right? Because you can now, you know, you come up with some new innovation of a, of a snazzy handbag or a, a great-looking uh, blouse, you can now make the thing in China for pennies on the dollar, right? That actually increases the returns coming up with smart set ideas. It actually reduces the production costs for the, for the item, just as it actually, so the idea producers are rewarded, the goods producers, at least in the home countries, aren't, aren't doing as well. And that's really, in some sense, the heart of successful cities uh, today, is that they're about making ideas. And um, the cities that, that have uh, focused on ideas have done well, uh, while other cities have, have not. Now, what are the statistics that goes along with you? I've, I've told a lot of stories, but in fact, there's sort of an underlying set of facts that I think supports this interpretation of history. And I think one of the most important set of facts is the remarkable connection between measures of human capital, measures of education, and, and too often I'm forced to use, we're forced to use formal measures of human capital like years of schooling or the share of the population of college degrees. When certainly when I mean human capital, I, use, I always mean the sort of richer set of skills that everyone carries along with them. Uh, because in fact, the reason why that's so important is, is cities aren't so much about formal years of schooling, they're about that other stuff. But uh, certainly if you use the formal years of schooling, there's a remarkable connection between places that started with more education and urban success. What you're looking at here across American metropolitan areas is the connection between changes in income over the past 20 uh, years and the initial share of the population that worked in skilled industries. Right? So skilled cities have done remarkably well in terms of financial success. Unskilled cities have done poorly. This is population growth in the Northeast and the Midwest and the share of the population with college degrees. About one half the variation in population growth in the Northeast and the Midwest can be explained by uh, initial years of schooling. I have here initial years of schooling in 1990, but you can do this with years of schooling in 1970 or 1940. In fact, Simon and used the skill, skill composition of occupations as early as 1880, which still manages to predict which cities have done well over the past 20 years, or which cities have reinvented themselves or not. And if you want to think about why you know, Boston is doing better than Youngstown, Ohio, right, they're both more or less on the regression line in terms of population. You know, there, there's, there's not a huge amount of them. There are outliers. But uh, the bulk of stuff is actually explained by uh, the skills uh, that workers have because, in fact, human capital is a complement with urban density because, in fact, the, the ability of cities to spread ideas is much more valuable for people that are in ideas-intensive sectors and people that wander in uh, with more skills. Um, this is the relationship between current log wage residual. So this is an individual's wage controlling for an individual's years of schooling and individual's... Uh, 
other, other individual uh, demographic characteristics, and then regressed on area-level schooling. This is a fact that's associated with Jim Rausch in a paper about 15 years ago in the Journal of Urban Economics and, and more recently Enrico Moretti. Uh, the basic fact is that a 10% increase in the share of the population with college degrees at the metropolitan area level is associated with a 7% increase in your wages, holding your schooling constant. So if you, if you work around people who are more, more college-educated, your wages uh, go up fairly, uh, fairly dramatically. Again, all supporting the notion that cities are about the sort of exchange of ideas and people learning from one another. One of the things, of course, that one of the reasons why historical human capital levels do so well at explaining current success is there's been a remarkable tendency of skilled places to become more skilled over time. What you're looking at here is the relationship between the share of the population with college degrees in 1990 and the growth in the share of the population with college degrees between 1990 and 2000. This is true uh, for, for the 1970 to 2000 period. The places that were initially more skilled have just gotten uh, more and more skilled over time. The skilled people have been attracted to working around other skilled people, which again corroborates this notion that cities are, are thriving by connecting uh, smart people. One way of understanding this fact is that a hundred years ago, people like Henry Ford, when they innovated, often innovated way, in ways that employed lots of relatively unskilled workers. Today, a modern equivalent of, of Henry Ford, say Bill Gates, innovates in a way that employs other people who are skilled uh, like, him, like uh, himself. Bill Gates, of course, is the classic example of why um, the formal measures of people with college degrees might not be a, such a good, might not always capture uh, human capital, as he was, of course, a college dropout, um, but certainly had uh, abundant human capital. Um, so that's, that's one part, one of the points that I wanted to make today, sort of making sense of, of this. And now I'm going to just riff through a bunch of different urban observations uh, that I think are, are uh, things that I, I think are helpful for understanding cities. Um, I think in some sense it's one way to understand my, my point for the last uh, half an hour is just that cities are, are incredibly important. And that just makes the case for centers like the new one the LSE Valley for generally understanding our cities better. Since they're not going, since they're not going away. One of the things that that uh, people often do is to point to urban poverty, point to the poverty that still exists in a place like London, point to the poverty that still exists in, in New York, and suggest that this is an example of cities cities that are failing, that there's some you know reason to think that this is that this is evidence of uh, urban failure. And certainly, inequality and poverty is, it does certainly suggest some degree of failure at the national level. And in fact, we. we have not done as good a job as perhaps we should have at making society fairer or more equal. But at the city level, it, it's really important to remember that cities aren't, by and large, making poor people poor. They're actually attracting poor people. And the poverty of migrants is actually generally higher than the poverty of long-term residents of, city, of, of urban areas, although it's generally, it's generally close. Cities are attracting poor people, because cities, not because cities are bad for poor people, not because cities are actually doing things that are terrible for the poor people that live in them, although occasionally they do, but in fact because cities actually are providing things that are valuable uh, for poor people. One of the areas in which, which I've worked is looking at the connection between public transportation and the location of the poor. And there's an enormously strong connection in the U.S. between access to public transportation and, and poverty. The multi-car lifestyle that's so much a part of the American middle class life is unaffordable to people in the bottom quintile income distribution. Cities, which have access to public transportation, therefore, tend to attract a lot of poor people. That is a sign of something good that public transportation is doing. Although if you took a naive side and said, boy, you know, it must, public transportation must be really bad if you're noticing that poverty goes up in an area once you put in a new rail stop. 
right? That's not the right interpretation. The right interpretation is not because poor people are attracted by this, uh, this, this amenity. And obviously, um, other things like the presence of ethnic networks or uh, economic opportunity, many other things are actually uh, attracting poor people to urban areas, and that's, that's all to the, to the good. I mean, this, the incredible strength of the migration margin also means that policies that are good to poor people will, of course, attract more people to urban areas. And you know, we, should, we always need to remember that sometimes that's a reason for limiting what we do for, for sometimes there's a reason for at least for rethinking having local welfare states, that in fact having large differences of, of of differentials across uh, across spaces in in terms of the payments that are given to poor is, is problematic, but in general, uh, I think the fact that cities have lots of inequality is a sign that cities are actually providing attractive things for both people at the top and at the bottom of the income distribution. And in some sense, that is less troubling than the false inequality of the suburbs. That in fact, it is it is in some sense healthier to actually have a range of amenities that appeal to to rich and poor alike than to have a, a particular type of amenity that only uh, appeals to a narrow uh, segment of, of the uh, population. Um, a second observation. Um, why are there so many people still living in the Rust Belt? I actually think when you look at Detroit and St. Louis and the eight out of the ten largest American cities that have less population now than they did 50 years ago, uh, I think actually the, the question is not why are these places declining. There are very good reasons why these places are declining. They're much less economically productive than they were 50 years ago. They never had the skill base that enabled them to reinvent themselves. The, the puzzle actually is why there are so many people there. Why, why it is that Detroit still has you know, 800, 900,000 people uh, living there, given the enormous economic uh, deprivation uh, that often takes place there. The answer, of course, I think lies in something good that Detroit is providing uh, for the poor. Uh, and that, that's something good is cheap housing. That the you know, hallmark of declining areas is they have a lot of infrastructure relative to people. And that when, when a place declines, the, cities, the, the houses don't disappear overnight. To a first-order approximation, the number of people in a place is proportional to the amount of housing. If the housing doesn't disappear overnight, then in fact the number of people is going to stay there are, is going to stay there much longer than it would if, if housing was uh, uh, putty, not not clay. Um, the um, the implication of that, actually, let me let me just show you this. Here's here's one way to think about this. This is the relationship between median family income and housing prices. Right? There's an enormously tight correlation between how much you earn in an area and how expensive housing is. This is, of course, one of the great you know. If there is a major economic tool for understanding space, it's the spatial equilibrium concept. It's the idea that housing prices and incomes and amenities are more adjust so that people more or less, people with the same skills, more or less get the same flow of stuff. Across, uh, across space. Um, it doesn't hold exactly, it, it holds in, in some sort of approximate thing, but certainly housing prices are enormously tied to uh, median, median family income. And um, if you do something, and what, what I've done here is I've, I've taken median housing price, and I've looked at the median housing price, and on the x-axis is the median housing price predicted by income and weather. Those two variables together explain something like 65% of uh, of differences in, in uh, housing prices. And this is from uh, the year 2000. And over there is the actual housing price. So the first thing, thing to see is actually the, the spatially equilibrium model of housing prices does pretty well. And actually do a pretty good job of actually explaining uh, housing prices with this. Now, the, the, so you know, Buffalo and Detroit, their price is what they should be, given how low incomes are, given the fact that the weather in these places isn't great. What's the dotted line? The dotted line is our estimate of what it would cost to build a house from fresh. Okay? 
these places are correctly priced, but they're all at the correct price that they that they're going for are all way below construction costs. Okay. In fact, roughly 90% of Detroit's housing stock, according to our estimates, is currently priced at below the cost of physically supplying a new unit. Okay. The, the way to understand this is that these houses were built during a time in which it was economically viable to build, in which building made sense. It is no longer. And if those houses disappeared, no one in this, no, no private developer unsubsidized would, would build them, uh, build them again. Um, the implication of this, of course, is that much of urban policy over the past 50 years is, is wrongheaded, and much of particularly urban policy in the U.S. There has been a remarkable tendency to try and fight urban decline by building more houses or providing more infrastructure for these places. The hallmark of declining places is that they have too much infrastructure, that they have too much housing relative to the number of people who want to live there. It cannot possibly make, it make sense to actually devote lots of new infrastructure and lots of new housing to places that have vast amounts of housing relative to the demand going, going into it. The last thing Detroit or Buffalo needs is more houses. That's what they've got in vast abundance. Um, there are other good reasons to rethink, in fact, a general question of why we, why we really want to help these areas, right? So uh, the basic economic presumption is always that we should be trying to help people rather than places. In many cases, you help people by strengthening places. So much of the pleasure, the joys we get out of life comes from living in a, in a healthy environment, comes from the aesthetics of the buildings around us, comes from the friends that we meet. But there are times where, in fact, the imperatives of the place and the imperatives of people are diametrically opposed. And building snazzy new buildings in downtown Cleveland or downtown Detroit does remarkably little, has done remarkably little for the lives of the relatively poor people living in, in these places. They may have created bragging rights for local officials who walk down and show a shiny building and start calling Cleveland the comeback city, which they frequently do, but there's no evidence from the poverty rates or from income that actually people are uh, doing better uh, in that area as a result. There are other reasons to, to be skeptical about the, the support for declining regions. Do you really want to bribe people to, play in, to stay in declining areas? Right? It, these areas are not places, so this came up in, in terms of thinking about our, our current president declared after Hurricane Katrina that a great city will rise again uh, in, in New Orleans. Well, should it? Did that actually make any sense? It's not as if the city of, the city of New Orleans was a port that had lost its economic reason for being like you know, most of these other, these other networks. It certainly wasn't doing a good job of taking care of its poorer citizens uh, ex post uh, in, in, in the city. Did it actually make sense to try and you know, spend, literally they were talking about hundreds of billions of dollars, to try and essentially bribe people to come back to a city that was clearly failing its citizens in, in uh, many important ways? In fact, recent work by, by Bruce Sasser and others has tended to suggest that the, that the children who were dispersed from, from New Orleans are actually doing better in schools now than the ones who uh, were not dispersed. That actually this has been the, the pushing, pushing people out from, from New Orleans has actually been a boon uh, to the kids in, in the area who have gone to more successful, uh, more successful regions. Um, the um, a third fact uh, I think that's worthwhile uh, paying attention to in cities is that the decline in the importance of transportation costs has been accompanied by the rise of a consumer city. And increasingly places compete by the ability to attract, uh, attract smart people, attract people who want to live there. Certainly the reinvention of London and New York, which certainly had much to do with finance, also had to do with the fact that the quality of life in these cities improved enormously over the past 30 years. And their ability to compete for high human capital people, compete for high human capital industries, depends to a great deal on maintaining a high quality uh, quality of life. Um, we see this in 
uh, let me just show you a simple statistical way of showing the rise of the consumer city. Um, this takes um, form of something that we'll call a, a, an amenity index. And we form the amenity index basically by looking at housing prices relative to incomes. And places that have really high prices relative to incomes, we, we infer that those places have high levels of amenities. Places that have low housing prices relative to incomes, we infer that those places have relatively low amenities because that's what you're, presumably you're paying for. That's what the spatial equilibrium model pushes you towards doing. Now, these are the cities in the US, the metropolitan areas that have the highest and lowest values of the amenity units. So I propose to you that this actually looks about right. That of the cities with the highest values of the amenity index that have really high housing prices relative to incomes, nine out of the 10 are in coastal California. And the other one's Honolulu, which I'm told is also a nice place. Uh, these ones, the Connecticut cities are a little bit problematic, because I think actually we probably mismeasured income in those places. But the other, the, uh, probably Nassau, Suffolk as well. But the other seven, that's kind of a rogues gallery uh, of American cities. Very few people think of going to Midland, Texas, or Rochester, Minnesota. For their, I mean, for their holidays, for example, and actually, holiday holiday visits are actually one sign of a of a place being a consumer city, and also uh, also predicts growth. This is then what looks at the relationship between metropolitan area growth and the initial amenity value in 1980. That actually, the places that had higher amenities by this did did much uh, did much better, um, along with human capital, the uh, the ability of the places to attract. Uh, attract people to be placed to thrive on quality of life uh, is a big deal, and and this is certainly a major function of um, of, of what city governments should be should be doing. Uh, you see this in other facts as well: the rise in reverse commuting, the rise in particular downtown areas, and uh, just let me just end this section with um, one final, again, I think fairly slightly counterintuitive prediction that comes out of uh, that comes out of the spatial equilibrium set, setting. Um, framework of thinking about real wages is telling you something about amenities actually leads towards rethinking what wage data is telling you. So this is the relationship between real wages and city population in 1970. Strong, robust, positive. This is the relationship in 2000. Negative weekly, not statistically significant. Positive, flat. Is that a sign that something bad has happened to those cities? Well, no. It's actually a sign that something good has happened to those cities. The fact that urban population is no longer positively associated with, with, with real wages is actually a sign that the amenities in these places have been turned around. It is not as if the nominal wages aren't still high as anything in these places. These places are still, by all measures, enormously productive and, if anything, more productive than ever. What's happened, of course, is that housing prices have moved up more quickly than, than wages have. And those high housing prices are reflecting the fact that in the New York of my youth in the mid-1970s, no one in his right mind would think of living in New York City and commuting out to the suburbs to work. Today, that is standard operating procedure for you know, lots of young people whose jobs are in, are in Connecticut or New Jersey, that they want to be in New York because it's fun. In the same sense that you know, London is home to you know, some very significant fraction of the world's billionaires who could, own, could live anywhere uh, and think of London as being an enormously attractive place to, you know, to consume. Um, so the decline of, of real wages is actually a sign of urban health, not a, not a sign of urban, urban problems. However, uh, or at least in part, however, there's a second side to this, uh, which is rising housing prices in London and New York is partially a sign of, of demand for these areas, but it's also a sign of supply. And this is an area in which I think actually public policy has badly failed us, that increasingly we've allowed our attractive urban areas to become gateless gated communities. We've allowed them to become completely not open to people who, don't, uh, who aren't Russian billionaires. 
Uh, and uh, that's, a, that's an issue. Um, in, in the U.S., so this was a U.S. slide, in, in the U.S., I'm, I, I would say the suburbs, not cities, are the center of restrictions on building. In fact, places like Chicago and to a lesser extent New York have been more open to building. Uh, in London, I think I can fairly say that London is certainly one of the great epicenters of barriers to building uh, that, uh, that have gone up over the past 30 years. Um, in the U.S., I would say, this is less from the U.K., that there's been a, a revolution over the past 40 years that has basically moved large swaths of America from being areas where developers could basically build whatever they wanted to areas in which neighbors of all stripes can say no to pretty much any project they want to say, say no to. Um, uh, and uh, the result has been it's become increasingly difficult to build in large, uh, large areas of, of America. Uh, this is, by the way, an area where I'm, I'm a deep fan, a reverent disciple of Jane Jacobs. This is where I think she got it really wrong. I think actually her view that New York had to stay low density was, was actually uh, putting us on a path where New York would be unaffordable and not open to large swaths of the population, which I think is a, is a big mistake. Um, this is the change in housing value and density. This is rising demand. But it's rising demand colliding with declining price. What you're seeing here is the, this is prices, the, the undulating line is rising. Prices in Boston, the line that had a huge boom in the 1980s and then it's flat since then, it's quantities of new construction. So as late as the 1980s, Boston was actually still building a fair amount of housing. Over the last 15 years, it's essentially shut down, uh, shut down the market. Um, this is not, when you look across metropolitan areas, what you're seeing here is a graph where I have the amount of permits between 2000 and 2005 relative to the stock of housing in 2000 on the x-axis. On the y-axis, I have, I have price. What this immediately tells you is that if you want to understand the distribution of prices in American cities, it's not enough to simply think about housing demand. Right? If everything was demand-driven, you'd expect to see prices and quantities moving in exactly the same direction. You'd expect to see the booming places, the places that are expensive, producing a lot more housing. Okay? But what you see on this graph is the places that build a lot are expensive, and the places that are expensive don't build a lot. There's also like the cluster of low-demand places that are down there. So Youngstown, Ohio has nothing to do with this story. Right? Youngstown, Ohio is just low-demand. Um, but among the other places, there is this big, there is this big gap. And um, this gap, and I've, I've written a series of papers with Joe Jerko on this, this gap is really not about lack of land. It is certainly true that the, high, the higher densities, the, the difficulties of building in Manhattan are always going to make it more expensive than in you know, green fields on the edge of some sunbelt uh, sprawling city. But at the same time, Manhattan could be a lot cheaper than it would be if it actually let builders build. Right? Standard economics tells us that the marginal cost of a square foot of housing should come close to construction costs if you're allowed to build up. Right? The cost of building up, when at last I looked, was somewhere around $350 to $400 a square foot in Manhattan. The real estate values for selling that stuff was more than double that. Right? That isn't compatible with a non-regulated market. It has nothing to do with the, the cost of land because you can always build up. The odd thing is, despite rising demand for, for Manhattan real estate, the building's heights have been getting lower and lower, which is, again, completely infeasible, completely something that would not come out of an economics without uh, regulatory barriers. Of course, there are also you know, significant direct uh, pieces of evidence showing the, the role that regulatory barriers play in limiting, uh, limiting growth and um, increasing prices uh, across, across space. That you know, it doesn't doesn't take a genius to figure out that restricting supply is going to mean that you know you're going to have end up having much more expensive places, and also you know in, in many ways a misallocation of people across space, that you end up having people not moving to places that are economically productive because it's it's too expensive because there aren't enough uh, aren't enough homes in the area. It is certainly true that I'm not advocating a you know complete Houstonian view of the world that you don't I mean you certainly need planning particularly in dense areas, but planning is perfectly compatible with high levels of density. 
and with, and with change. Certainly Singapore and Hong Kong are certainly planned cities, right? But they're cities that have repeatedly upped the, upped the density level and as a result are, you know, are, are not out of reach for, uh, ordinary, for ordinary people. In some sense, this is, you know, this is what's good about sprawl. This is what the sprawling areas of the American exurbs are able to do in this, you know, in this world that you know, is, is relatively, it's not necessarily good for the environment. I'm just going to spend some time on that. It's not necessarily all that productive economically. But my goodness, is the housing affordable. And it's new housing, and it's, it's uh, cheap housing. And uh, if you go through just a calculation of what an ordinary American, say, earning $70,000 in New York, earning $60,000 in Houston, what their life looks like, the life of an ordinary American in Houston earning $60,000 a year is pretty staggeringly good by any sort of material measure of, of, of wealth. I mean, the houses are, are better than anything I lived in until, until about three years ago in my entire life. The commutes are fast, the schools are decent. Uh, I'm not, in any sense, advocating moving to Houston, right? I'm, uh, I'm uh, you know, I'm a sure, but you sure as heck can understand why the four fastest growing metropolitan areas in the U.S. are Atlanta, Houston, Dallas, and Phoenix. Right? They're providing a cheap, decent lifestyle for ordinary Americans who are priced out of places like coastal California, which has much better weather, which has much more, which is much more economically productive. But in Marin County, there are places that have 60-acre minimum lot sizes. Okay? You can't actually house ordinary people if you're going to have 60-acre minimum lot sizes. And you can't house them in London if you're going to have very sharp height restrictions that you know, preserve every, uh, every old Victorian building, uh, no matter how undistinguished. Uh, the... Um, <laughs> Um, okay. Um, let me end uh, by bringing the environment. Uh, nothing that I've said so far has suggested anything about, um, about environmental concern, but Houston is always a good segue into discussions of the, of the environment. Um, I, I really want to make two points about, about the environment, and, and one of which is the point that, that actually cities are the greenest things in the world. Right, that actually there's nothing greener than blacktop. And that in fact, Henry David Thoreau got exactly wrong when he's connected environmentalism with living in low densities out in the, out in the woods. Right, I'm, I'm always reminded of, a, of a, an anecdote where Henry David Thoreau went out to uh, have a, uh, went out to have a picnic one, one afternoon in, in Concord. And you know, his, the fire spread from his childhood and burned down 300 prime acres of Concord woodland. This, this, this feels close to me because I actually live not so far away from there. Uh, so he burned down huge swaths of the, of the farms. Um, that's what happens when you live around the woods, right? Human beings do damage to the stuff that we're around. There weren't any Boston merchants who were doing that much damage to the woods. They were living in their, their dense, dense urban dwellings. The modern equivalent of this, of course, is in carbon. Right, is in terms of carbon emissions. And there's a substantial difference, uh, and I'll just talk a little bit about our methodology, I'll go over quickly, between the carbon emissions of people who live in dense urban areas who take you know, public transportation or walk to work than with people who live in leafy suburbs who drive places and live in, live in larger houses that require much, uh, much heating. There's a, there's a substantial gap uh, on that. Um, the other thing that I'm going to say is actually that the environmentalists have it, have it wrong as well. Um, the environmentalists who actually... Have, have, been, have signed off, have been major proponents of limiting development in coastal California, actually have got the environmental consequences of what they're doing exactly backward. And that actually California is the best place. If you actually cared about global, global warming, you should put a huge amount of America's new development in coastal California. It requires almost no heat, almost no cooling, and the densities are high enough and there's enough public transportation that actually these places are by far the greenest areas of the country. And yet the environmental movement has shut down 
development in coastal California. Now, the number of houses that America is going to build is basically roughly scales to the rate of new household formation, about 1.6 million units a year. If those houses aren't being built in coastal California, they're going to be built in Houston, Texas, where they're going to have a lot more driving and a lot more energy use. So let me just, let me just walk, walk through that. And needless to say, alleged environmentalists who think their job is also to limit the heights of, of urban buildings, they also have it backwards, too. Um, okay. Uh, this is, these are just facts to tell you where growth has been going. I, I've already mentioned this. There's a lot of growth going to places with hot Julys, places with lots of cars. This is where people are, people are moving. Um, Matt Kahn and I calculate the amount of carbon emissions by area. And we try to do this in a way that calculates the carbon emissions for a typical new home. So we're not going to do anything about workplace carbon. And we're not going to do anything about... Um, you know, anything about the goods that you consume, right? This is about driving, and it's about your energy use in the home. And we're just trying to figure out how much a new home differs in different parts of the country, in cities versus suburbs. There's a fair amount of work that goes through this, right? And, oh, and another thing that we're doing, we're trying to hold family income and size constant. So we're not about moving, uh, we're not about a typical, comparing sort of a typical urbanite with a typical suburbanite, reflecting the fact that a typical urbanite is a, you know, 20-something single uh, and the suburban family has six members, right? We're not, that, that, wouldn't, be, that wouldn't be fair, right? We're comparing a, a, an average American household in different, different places. We're not holding housing characteristics constant. That would make no sense, right? We're not assuming that the suburbanite is going to, if they move into the city, is going to also live in a 3,000-square-foot, you know, uh, house. Uh, but we are going to hold income constant. We're adding up CO2 emissions from private gasoline consumption, public transportation emissions, home electricity, and home heating, which is natural gas and fuel oil. There's a lot of, I, I'm, I'm running sufficiently short on this that I'm not actually going to go through all the methodology, but we use a combination of census data, residential electricity consumption surveys, and driving data from the National Household Transportation Survey in order to try and estimate this for each, each household. Um, this is the kind of thing that you get. This is our estimate of the number of gallons of gas that, that, the, fa that the household consumes from driving uh, on city population. What you see is the bigger the city, the less gas the people use. They're, they're typically driving much shorter, much shorter distances. Household electricity, that's really a function of July temperature. Hot summers are the things that drive electricity usage in, in the U.S. There are some exceptions. The desert cities actually are somewhat lower electricity usage than you might think, in part because they've actually got fairly cool nights. Uh, so they've got, hot, they've got hot days and cool nights, which involves less stuff. But by and large, hot summers are the driver of electricity. And I didn't put this up. You won't be surprised to know that home heating electricity, home heating energy usage is related to cold winters. That actually those are the, those are the, those are the things. So these are the 10 uh, metropolitan areas in the country that have the lowest uh, levels of, um, of, of carbon emissions. Uh, San Diego, San Francisco, San Jose are, are the, the California areas are, are at the very bottom. Um, there also are a few New England uh, towns going on here, places that actually have very little electricity usage and that don't involve a huge amount of, of driving. Boston is on the top ten list. These are the places with the most. Okay? The, the dollar cost is taking one half of the Stern Report number, a $43 per ton number. I, I'm not sure how much I believe that $43 per ton number, but it's a difference in cost of about, th about eight, eight or $900 a year in terms of the externality created by carbon emissions in, in the greenest places versus the, the least green places. And look at these guys. These are all places in the, old Southwest, in, in the Old South, right? These are places that have very, very hot summers and people drive like crazy. Um, this is the relationship between land use regulation and the estimated environmental cost. Okay? The places in coastal California have, this is the Wharton land use regulation put together by uh, Joe Jurgel and Anita Summers and Alpha Saez. 
places in the coast of California are both the greenest and by far the most restricted areas of the country. Not surprising. The same environmentalists who, put, who you know, chose to live in this you know, beautiful area and then actually helped to make sure that their appliances were particularly green and helped to make sure that they had particularly green sources of energy. Uh, those places also have, you know, that same environmental lobby, worked to make uh, building uh, far more restricted. The places with the highest costs, Oklahoma City, Dallas, Fort Worth, Houston, Memphis, those are the places that are the least restricted. What happens as a result of this? Well, land use regulations make sure that people are moving. People, new growth is not happening in the places where it should happen, at least from an environmental perspective, the green places in coastal California, but that it is moving to the places in you know, Houston, Dallas, and so on and so forth. Right? So you have this, you have this switch uh, of people that are moved around by, by land use restrictions, which is sort of one of those classic examples where things that are, you know, of the foolishness of this slogans like think locally, think locally, act locally. Right? Imposing a bunch of local land use restrictions without thinking about the global consequences of that, without thinking about the fact that you're part of an urban system where you're moving people around ends up actually completely undoing the, the alleged positive benefits uh, of what you're, what you're trying to achieve. Um, these are city-suburb differences. These are the cities that have the biggest differences between cities and suburbs. And, and almost everywhere, cities are much greener uh, than their suburban counterparts. This is, this is a, uh, a map of Boston uh, showing the, the greenest census tracts by, by, by space. So I, I, think I'm going to, uh, I think I'm going to end there. But um, you know, I, I just want to sort of recap the major, the major theme of this talk, which is that cities are far from dying. And I, and I believe even in this time of crisis, even in this time in which finance is, is so troubled, that cities are, are still the you know, great hope of uh, our countries and our economies and our civilization. I, I, I feel very confident that even though the next three or four years may be quite grim, that smart people connecting with each other in urban areas will be the source of the next reinvention, just as it was the source of the, of the, past, uh, of the past reinvention. Um, because cities are so precious, because they're so important, it's important to get urban policy right. And I think that policy requires thinking about human capital as being the source of, of urban strength. It requires thinking about the important role the quality of life plays in attracting people to urban areas and the importance of focusing on basic quality of life uh, variables. It requires recognizing that good urban policy will, also, will often end up with lots of poor people in urban areas. It requires thinking about whether or not it actually makes sense to try and majorly subsidize declining regions and trying, particularly, uh, does it make sense to actually try and build extra infrastructure in places uh, that are declining. It certainly requires rethinking the barriers to city growth, which have made cities unduly expensive, have stopped people from moving to these highly productive areas, and have, in some sense, uh, at least I believe, been, been environmentally quite costly by stopping people from living in urban areas where they would use much less energy and pushing them to uh, suburban sprawl where, where they, where they use, use more. So uh, let me stop there and pause for questions.
and places which had which had turned themselves round. Because the kind of Pittsburgh type or Baltimore, you know, redevelopment of. I mean, are there any stories in, in there that you are impressed with? And because it was shown that it's possible to run a city and go for higher density, more environmentally friendly, and succeed in turning it round on your various measures. I mean, are there any shining examples you could point to where this kind of analysis has actually been used in practice? I, um, you know, I, I think there are, you know, when you actually look at the percentage of inventors now, it is more driven by you know, a single variable that does so well, particularly, of course, the human capital of the people living in there. Uh, a large amount of the effect of human capital is working through economic productivity and reinvention and, and uh, private sector ingenuity. But I also am a strong believer that human capital then relates to the quality of government as well. That actually cities cities that actually have, have less human capital have more troubles actually getting towards uh, good government. They're often driven by ethnic strife and, and other problems. Finance that being costly, uh, costly as well. I, I think there's no question. And the story that I told about New York is one that puts the private sector front and center. I believe that it deserves that. But in terms of improving New York's quality of life, that involved a very heavy uh, public sector involvement that required you know major changes in policing. Changes in policing, by the way, that involved such human costs in terms of imprisonment that I'm not even sure it was worth it. But but they were they were certainly, you know, huge improvements in the city's quality of life that came from uh, production of crime. Um, schools were less effective in New York. But there was a general focus on basic quality of life issues that came out of the realization in the 60s and 70s of the dreams of the Lindsay era that you could sort of run some you know local welfare state that you fix everything weren't going to work and fish came back to the nuts and bolts uh, of basic city government. Um, the, the Baltimore, you know, Baltimore and Pittsburgh are interesting examples. Um, they both uh, have done moderately well. I think uh, they're, they're very far away from sort of the, the real winners in terms of Minneapolis, mm -hmm. Minneapolis, Boston, New York. Winner. They're places that have good PR machines that tend to focus on the shiny infrastructure downtown. Right. So you go to Baltimore's waterfront as they do often with my kids, and it's it's nice there. It's an, it's an attractive amenity. Uh, it's less clear that it had huge advantages for the people living in. in you know, the people who had been, had been living uh, in, in Baltimore. But I think there's no question that there are, you know, spatial amenities, there are forms of development, there are things that are, you know, potentially part of making a city an attractive place, part of making a place where I can have to want to, want to be part of increasing the ability of uh, people to connect with one another and learn from one another and making this place a vibrant place. And I think there certainly are examples of uh, areas where that, that has been done uh, successfully. I think, I mean, I, don't, I do think that the Baltimore Waterfront is a relatively successful example of this. I think uh, Boston's Van uh, Hall, Quincy Market development has been relatively successful uh, along these lines. Um, but, um, you know, it is, it is permiss. Okay. Um, we'd like to, yeah, uh, I don't know, white top. Let's hand up first. You could give your name where you're from. Thank you. I'm from LED. Um, one question I'm going to ask, I'm following all those um, kind of things, I can ima imagine if everything what you said is really convincing. And I'm, I'm kind of imagining it's in like in 20 years time, all of those smart people and with human capital and knowledge get into the urban area and they have all those knowledge spillovers. I'm kind of imagining even the environmental issue is not a big problem as you said, um, but there is a social conflict, do you think? those divergence, no matter it's in the national level or even in the regional level, 
could result in a social conflict. So I think the combination of rich and poor in an urban area yeah. creates social conflict, of course, and it has steadily over the past 2,500 20, 20, 20, years. I mean, that's, that's, I think, one of the reasons why. And that's, that's in some sense, the backdrop for the, for the value What we do know, however, 
is that it almost surely will increase the productivity of the people who move here. Right? So it's, it's having a national effect of allowing people to move from less productive areas to more productive areas, which is making the country more productive and making the migrants more productive. But to the current residents, it is, it is, it is not a blessing. Um, that is, I think, one of the reasons why this is politically so enormously difficult, is that if you empower neighbors to, you know, to, to ban housing uh, from being built, they're almost surely to choose to, choose to do this. Um, uh, that doesn't make it good or, I think, you know, acceptable. It just makes it an uphill. It just makes it an uphill, you know, challenge. Luckily, we have Paul Cheshire here who's been fighting this for, for fighting this uphill battle for, for, for a long time. Uh, but but you know, the I think it needs to be. There's no hope, at least in the U.S., that localities are going to you know do this on their own. But I think that's that's a complete fool. That you know, uh, occasionally you come up with the, someone suggests that you go out and talk to the fine you know talk to talk to the fine people of you know various Boston suburbs and just. Show them why it's bad for the economy of the state that they're, that they're doing this. Uh, it's ridiculous. I mean, they, they're not going to do something that's against their. I'm too much of an economist to believe that they're all of a sudden going to do something that's against their, uh, their, their, their self-interest. And they're certainly telling them that, that it would lower housing prices and make housing more affordable. It's not a winning argument either, right? Uh, it's, it's got to. It's got to actually come from a higher level. It's got to come from something from in the U.S. the state or the federal level, uh, or in the U.K. would of course be the, be the national level. Uh, in the states, there are two. There, in Massachusetts, there are two models: chapters 40B uh, and 40R. Uh, 40B essentially is creates an, an override on local zoning. So, if, a, so if an area has sufficiently little affordable housing, the developers can actually bypass the local the local zoning authorities if they put in enough units that are affordable into their project. So this provides, in some sense, a safety valve. It's of course wildly unpopular, uh, as you can imagine, with the, with the people who are you know having the project put in, in their area. But uh, you know, I think it's it's. Overwhelmingly, the affordable housing, the rental housing that's been built in Massachusetts over the last 30 years has been through Chapter 40B. There's also 40R, which is much more politically palatable, and which actually ties age localities to how much they permit. So you can actually, instead of, if you, if you don't like the command and control thing that feels too status for you, the other, the other approach is to bribe them. And to, you, can, you can create some kind of a quota system that, you know, rich, rich towns that don't want to allow allow a new building end up having to pay money and then the money gets transferred to middle income towns that require more, that are willing to actually be a little bit more, a little looser. You can think of all sorts of creative, creative ways to do this. Yeah, uh, green grab. Uh, green map. <laughs> <laughs> My name is Chris. I'm from uh, Kansas City. I'm with the Local Economic Development Program as well. Um, I had, this goes kind of along with the, the policy, but on the other side of it, what do you do or have you thought about how you create incentives for the mayors or the local government officials of the cities that are declining to say, don't do anything? Um, you know, I, I largely, largely agree with you, but how do you convince them to say you should let everyone move to California and not stay in Detroit? Well, actually, I don't think it's unhealthy for city mayor, well, it's a little bit complicated, but, but I, I don't think it's unhealthy for city mayors to be city boosters. I think that's actually a standard job of city mayors. It's not the worst thing in the world. What you just don't want to do is you don't want the federal government to be taxing guys in, you know, in, in Las Vegas to try and bribe people to continue to live in Detroit. That's that's what, or, or you certainly don't want to be using $50 billion of taxpayers' money to try and revitalize the car industry. Uh, the, um, the, the, the Just give it all to investment tax. That's what I'm saying. We're all behind that here. But at the, at the local level, I, I think the, the, I mean, the main thing is actually mayors 
once in my life I want a mayor to say, well, you know, this is the population of my city dropped by 30% during my tenure, but those guys went on to get great jobs in, you know, growing, growing cities elsewhere, and I'm really proud of the job that I did educating them and training them for success elsewhere. Just once I want to hear a mayor do that. But it's not going to happen, but there, there are hopeful signs. Uh, the mayor of Youngstown, Ohio, for example, is a, is a big, you know, cities that have lost 50 plus percent of the population, eventually it strikes them that they're able to say we're not going to come back and we're not going to pretend that we are. And that we're going to, you know, rethink our land use policy in a way that's more realistic. And we're going to think about, you know, how to provide a more meaningful life for people in our area rather than pursuing some foolish population number that's, that's just not going to happen. I, I, I phrase this, I call this shrinking to greatness. As, uh, and I think it's actually is a, you know, I think, I think reality is sort of forcing itself on, on more of these guys. Sadly, actually, the now, uh, now gone mayor of Detroit, Kwame Kilpatrick, actually came in with some of this as well, but didn't really follow through and he had other issues. Neil Barton from I, I've spent the last ten years in the Bartlett School of Planning, and before that I spent the best part of twenty years in Merrill Lynch research. Um, there's an editorial in today's Wall Street Journal that says thirty years ago, two percent of the uh, working population of New York State were in the finance industry, contributing 2% of income. Uh, last year, it was still 2% of, of employees, but it was 20% of income. Now, to quote Bob Farrell from Merrill Lynch, although uh, things revert to mean. So, how, when we revert to mean in the finance industry as a share of national income, how much does that affect your results and your studies? You know, I, I, it's not that I doubt that this would be a tough three to five years in finance. It's not that I doubt that, in fact, this, you know, the, the reinvention such as it is, is is unlikely to be permanently sustainable in this, in this industry. Uh, what I have faith in is, is the ability of smart people in cities to reinvent those cities. Right? So let me, let me just speak briefly about sort of the, the, the remarkable thing about Boston, right? is that Boston is a city that never had any national comparative economic advantage, or never had much of one, maybe some cranberry fields, right? But it's in some sense the first American consumer city, right? Because as opposed to, you know, Virginia, which had tobacco and, you know, other silver and gold, this was formed by places, by people who actually were, the, were moving there for consumption reasons, not production reasons. Now, of course, non-economists might say that, you know, consumption is an awfully economic way to, to term the desire for eternal salvation. But you know that that that, that they, it certainly was not about the gentleman who thought that he was going to earn more money in Boston than he would have by you know working in his family's traditional you know wool weaving uh, job in, in, in London. Um, the but the, the the city has over and over again had its you know feet taken away from under it. Right? It, it you know it developed an economic model of basically it didn't have anything that was worth shipping back to England in the 17th century because the transportation was too high because it's, its climate is too close to that of, of the UK. So it, it survives by shipping basic commodities to the southern states that actually had cash crops that were worth exporting. That gets you know taken out from under it in the 18th century when New York and Philadelphia figure out they can do exactly the same thing, do it better because they've got richer, richer wheat fields and, and shorter distances going, going south. Takes Boston about 50 years, but then reinvents itself around human capital that's related to clipper ships going over long distances. I mean, Boston is the center of the China, China trade. As late as 1840, 40% of Boston's population is in the, 40% of its employed workers are in the maritime trades. They're not in manufacturing. 
as late as 1840. The end of all of that human capital was sales specific. And when steam comes along, it completely, you know, takes the wind out of, uh, of, that, of that industry. Uh, the, um, you know, Boston and Munich itself is a manufacturing city in the 19th century. That declines in the 20th century. It invents itself around, around uh, high human capital, uh, finance, electronics, and so on and so forth. So, you know, I, I really believe that this, is, that this is doable. I don't know what that industry will be. I think it's enormously hard to predict what the new thing is. But I, I have, you know, every confidence that the smart people in London and New York will also figure out something smart to do together. Now, I should say just one caveat. I have always thought the degree of dependence that the New York economy went into in finance insurance was dangerous, right? There's a lot of evidence that suggests that industrial diversity is a good thing in cities, in part because new ideas are formed by emerging old ideas in places that have lots of, you know, old ideas coming into different industries that have more, more sources that you can draw from this an idea, of course, that's associated with Jay Jacobs. Uh, most of all, there's of course statistical work suggesting the role of diversity in terms of uh, fueling economic growth. And so I think it's, you know, it, it certainly was dangerous that New York was so heavily invested in one, uh, one industry. On the other hand, New York still got plenty of other stuff going, in, in, going on in it, as does London. So I think there, there is sort of enough to draw on, and I, and I couldn't possibly guess where the new, new thing will, will, will show up. Um, um, we'll take it just to take a couple more. Uh, we'll go with the hat on over there. Yeah. Gloves as well. <laughs> yes, my name is Solomon. I'm a student here at the LSC. My question is about security and uh, disaster management. Be before September 11, nobody ever thought that somebody could hijack a plane and use it to crash into a building. And we saw Mayor, I think it was called Giuliani. He allowed the firemen to go into that building and then they were they were crushed there in that collapse because nobody knew that the building could collapse or crumble and then there have also been other disasters like in Louisiana and I'm also told in California uh, there's a huge seismic rock under that state and the cities of San Francisco I think and Los Angeles could suffer an earthquake so uh, what, in your opinion, are the measures which could be put in place to anticipate an unconventional uh, disaster, such as, say, September 11th, or any other that could arise?
take one more from uh, uh, over there, yeah. Um, Gray. <laughs> Gray guy, behind green guy. Yes. The, uh, <laughs> Hello, I'm Felix Weinert, uh, from the Geography Department. And um, we in London like this idea that, you know, we are one of these thriving cities as well. Yeah, we're doing quite well um, over the last 30 years. You mentioned London as well. So if I compare London to all these, um, like, cities that are doing well in the United States, we're mainly based in California. Um, well, the basic big difference is that the weather is pretty bad over here, right? <laughs> and according to your analysis, the weather and, let's say, the share of people with a college degree are the main predictors of uh, success. So the, on the upside, um, there are not many places in the UK where the weather is much better than in London, right? <laughs> so you could say this possibly explains why you, know, you could have such a successful city even in well, this kind of weather conditions. But now we have something like European integration going on, so don't you think that possibly in the long run um, London will actually lose out to places like uh, Barcelona, let's say, you know, where you have nice weather and you know, it's quite close as well. So once people move there, could, you, know, you get the best possible, don't you? Yeah, it, it is. It is true in, in uh, lots of other countries within countries that tend to move towards warmer places. Uh, even within the, within the UK, that's certainly true. I think I think from other other places as well. Um, you know, the effects are particularly strong in the US because our population is, is so mobile, and then it's only one factor in terms of success. Right? I mean, New York doesn't. You know, New York is doing perfectly well. Boston's doing perfectly well. Minnesota, Minneapolis is doing perfectly well. Despite the, the cold weather, so it's clearly sort of having a, a sufficiently robust other set of things. Um, it, it I also want to stress that I think cold weather is just in one vector of the amenity distribution, and London has an extraordinary set of other amenities, parts of which reflect the long hand of history and, and beautiful architecture, which is why you know not you know, I believe in taller buildings, but not every building should be you know much much of the city is, is, a, is a world treasure, um, and and you know part of those amenities are the things that come naturally out of urban density. Just that you know the, the thriving, the thriving restaurant scene, the the, the merging by you know ideas are great when they create sort of new financial products most of the time, uh, but they're also great when they create new types of Indian food, right? They're also great when they do all sorts of other things that happen in, in cities that make uh, the cities more productive. And that's part of the magic of London. That's one of the nice too. So I'm not, I'm not. Uh, uh,